Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody had a great Independence Day and a great Independence Day uh, holiday uh, weekend, extended uh, weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead, the abbreviated week ahead, and whatever else is on his mind. But first joining us, as he does every Monday, is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow uh, at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and is one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military uh, and unmanned systems. Sam, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure uh, having you on and hope you and yours had a terrific uh, holiday weekend. Thanks so much, Vago. We had indeed, and I hope you had a good holiday weekend as well. Indeed, it was terrific celebrating the nation's 247th uh, birthday. Uh, and uh, it's always, uh, always a very, very special time. Uh, one of the most special uh, holidays, uh, especially if you're a first-generation uh, immigrant or if you're any American, uh, actually. Um, and I should also point out, programming note, uh, we have an abbreviated week this week. So tomorrow, instead of the Air Power program, it will be the All Power program uh, with uh, the hosts of all of our uh, podcasts, uh, uh, Chris Cavas uh, and Chris Cervello of the Cavas Ships podcast. Uh, Laura Winter of the Downlink, as well as JJ Gertler, who's uh, my co-host on the Air Power podcast, will all be uh, coming together for an analysis of what's uh, been going on in uh, U.S. defense uh, over the past six months as part of our mid-year uh, review. So tune in for that, and we'll have the uh, normal Washington roundtable on Friday, and then the business uh, roundtable comes back on uh, Sunday. But before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Sam, um, it's been a week or a little bit more than a week since the aborted uh, Prigozhin uh, mutiny. There's a lot of talk about how weakened Putin uh, has been. Uh, He visited Dagestan, which many people thought was unusual, but you're going to tell us why that wasn't uh, to demonstrate that he is a real man of the people wading into the crowds uh, as he did. No body armor uh, for a guy who's, you know, usually sat at the end of a 50 foot long table. Um, And to show he was in charge on, on Tuesday, he had a virtual meeting. Uh, with Shanghai Cooperation Council members uh, Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi. Uh, And he also did what every autocrat in history has ever done, which is to give the men with guns uh, a very, very generous pay raise. How stable and secure is Vladimir Putin uh, at the moment, even if we want to imagine him to be, you know, sort of one foot out the door or one foot on a banana peel? Well, last week when we talked about the mutiny, we actually asked a lot of questions and we cautioned people not to jump to conclusions because so much wasn't really known and so much is still not known about what what actually happened and what transpired behind the scenes Uh, and so we haven't heard from Prigozhin so far his he hasn't posted anything on his telegram channel during the mutiny and before that he would post multiple times a day so we haven't really heard anything Uh, we also started to see evidence of some of his uh, Wagner empire getting dismantled his media arm, his uh, troll farm, um, even his Wagner Center in St. Petersburg, apparently he lost that. Uh, Wagner was a very useful tool for the Russian foreign policy in general, and as an institution that could operate in the former Soviet states in Ukraine and in Africa, it was basically an organization that provided Russian government with a lot of plausible deniability, as well as the ability to accomplish 
a lot of things that its military or, or official policy didn't want to admit or accomplish. And so there's now a lot of debate about what is happening uh, with Wagner in Africa, whether it's going to continue functioning as before and provide support to certain African states. Certainly Vladimir Putin is still in power. Certainly uh, his, um, he is still very much in place along with his uh, allies. Uh, but uh, people have uh, have noticed some unusual behavior. For example, when he visited Dagestan, as you have indicated, he was out there in the crowds hugging people and having people getting really close to him. That's really uh, unusual for someone who for many, many years sort of tried to stay away from exactly this type of very close engagement. And behavior like that, which is in contrast to much of his official behavior, breeds a lot of rumors, but we're not going to go there. We're just going to kind of uh, take things as they are. And, uh, and, and by the way, a, some have even suggested that those are one of his many body doubles did that, uh, right? I mean, there's been a little bit of discussion of, okay, was that actually Putin or not, right, in, in some circles? His behavior basically is indicative of uh, a lot of um, uh, facts that breed these uh, such rumors, because on one hand, he could have a very sort of distant contact with even his closest officials, as you have indicated. He's sitting across from a very long table um, and shortly afterwards he's out there gleefully hugging people that's really right. unusual even even for western politicians who are uh, who are normally engaging a lot with their constituents on a regular basis and so the question is 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 putin really secure right and why is he in dagestan well dagestan is in the caucasus there are some uh, indications and maybe some conjectures that uh, wagner forces in ukraine may be replaced by more fighters from the caucasus for example uh, and therefore, his presence in Dagestan, which is which is in the Caucasus region, um, is uh, sort of an indication that he's trying to engage the local communities and show the local communities that they matter and that he can actually be speaking with them directly. There's no indication that he has been weakened significantly, but obviously a mutiny of this kind um, that has demonstrated so many weaknesses within the Russian system can't really go sort of uh, unnoticed and is going to leave a lasting effect. One of the consequences of uh, the mutiny is the potential strengthening of the Russian National Guard, headed by Putin ally Zolotov, mm -hmm. because National Guard was nowhere to be seen during the mutiny. And it is, in fact, National Guard's um, duty to suppress any internal dissent, including a potential armed insurrection. Um, this particular institution may actually be strengthened going forward. And so his allies, Olatov, may get uh, more responsibility, possibly more weapons, um, such as tanks and armored vehicles and other systems capable of potentially suppressing something like that. But Putin is still in power. Um, he, again, is uh, trying to maneuver between his, uh, uh, his allies and, uh, and any potential competition. There's no real competitor or challenger to his rule right now following the mutiny, but it's only been about nine days. And again, there's a lot we don't know about what actually happened and didn't happen. The fact that Prigozhin is not making any public speeches or any significant appearances is also indicative that something may be happening behind the scenes, possibly negotiations or something else. Um, he may be in Belarus, but we don't know exactly what kind of shape his uh, remnant Wagner organization will take in Belarus, if it's even going to be keeping the same name and the same structure. Uh, and what happens to that organization after Belarus, whether it will be uh, used by government of Lukashenko or it will do something else on behalf of the Russian state in general.
Um, and and what happens to all the private right? I mean, everybody has a focus on uh, the Wagner uh, Private Military uh, Corporation, right? PMC. But there are other PMCs also, and as you mentioned, right, uh, you know, whether, you know, they would be replaced by Dagestanis, obviously, uh, Ramzan Khadirov, uh, the head of the Chechen Republic, is a giant Putin supporter. Uh, obviously, some uh, evidence that Chechens have also been fighting uh, on behalf of Russia. Um, kind of walk us through what happens to all the private military companies, right? I mean, because if Wagner, even if Wagner is disbanded, or has a change of ownership, right? That's never a problem uh, for for uh, Putin. Um, Wagner is critical, whether in Syria or anywhere else uh, that Russia, you know, all across Africa, there was a lot of concern among these places. What happens to all the private uh, military contractors? Do they get put under one banner, right? What, what, what happens uh, ultimately? Because these mercenary forces are very important for Russian strategy in the Middle East, uh, as well as across Africa. Right. And it's still an ongoing development. There was a lot of discomfort with Wagner-like organizations in Russia, even before the mutiny took place. And the discomfort was with either um, competing organizations to Wagner or with many Russian politicians who just generally do not trust the concept of a private military corporation as a Western entity. Um, and they didn't trust the fact that uh, PMCs in general usually do the work on behalf of the uh, highest bidder. So there's going to be some reforms. There's going to be some consolidations. At the same time, a lot of Russian companies are moving in the direction of establishing their own PMC-like organizations to guard their uh, internal uh, assets in Russia, as well as their international assets, wherever they may be. So we'll have to wait and see exactly what happens to the PMC-like organizations in Russia and what happens to the Rand Wagner organization now that it's stationed in Belarus or uh, its um, subsidiaries in Africa, Syria, and elsewhere. Um, let me uh, ask uh, really quickly on a, um, I have to ask you a war update. Uh, so Dmitry Medvedev says, um, you know, Russia's had an amazing recruiting season, 185,000 um, new soldiers uh, that are being brought into the Russian uh, army. Uh, and on the same time, we also hear that the Ukrainians actually have been making some pretty significant positioning gains, right? They're testing where the Russians are. The bulk of its uh, Western trained units and Western armed units haven't been used yet. It's been making some very selective strikes. Um, where are we, right? What does the manpower increase mean? And where are we battlefield wise? Uh, and what do you think is interesting about where it is we are given what it is we think we know? Well, the Ukrainians continuing to press the Russians along the um, along the front, but it is again slow progress, because as we indicated earlier, Russians had the time to dig in, establish significant amount of fortifications, which are slowing down uh, Ukrainian advances. Russians have also been learning from Ukrainian experience and their own mistakes, and they're using a combination of older and new tactics, as well as weapons and systems like FPV drones to try and slow down Ukrainian advances. Uh, as far as manpower is concerned, Russia is wary of doing a second mobilization wave uh, because of a potential discontent within the Russian society uh, following everything that happened. And so the current crop of soldiers is supposed to be uh, enough uh, at the moment 
for the Russians to uh, slow down Ukrainian advance. That's the main goal right now, to make sure that um, as far as the Russian military and the Kremlin is concerned, to not allow Ukrainians any significant gains, any massive gains that could be interpreted as um, as a victory, whether limited or, uh, or total. So uh, Russians are concerned, of course, with uh, Ukrainian manpower and Ukrainian technologies, the continued supply of weapons and systems to Ukraine. And so the um, the current recruitment drive is supposed to kind of be um, um, basically a buffer between um, Ukrainian uh, advances and potential successes and uh, uh, Russia's own sort of stance in Ukraine along the front. Uh, and uh, what's the latest in uh, unmanned systems news, right? I mean, the war is a real uh, laboratory. We just saw the Ukrainians mount uh, another assault on uh, Moscow with long-range unmanned uh, systems. Russians saying they knocked, uh, knocked them down. Uh, where are we in this put and take, uh, if you will, of the war on the unmanned side of the equation? Well, as predicted, the Russian government has been dismissive of this Ukrainian strike. While they expressed concerns, uh, they at the same time indicated that nothing really significant happened and there was no casualties, there was no damage, and uh, they were able to interdict all of the drones that attacked. Of course, U- Ukrainians or whoever's continues, uh, excuse me, continued um, attacks on Moscow is indicative, again, of the difficulty of trying to protect um, large assets like cities, large industrial centers uh, from strikes that could be taken or launched from practically anywhere, whether from Ukrainian territory or from Russian territory proper. Uh, What's interesting is now we're hearing from some of the Ukrainian commentators that they are concerned that they're seeing more and more Russian UAVs in the field, especially Landsat 3 loading munition, which hunts Ukrainian long-range artillery and other uh, key assets donated by the West. Uh, This is one of Russia's most significant UAV assets in the field right now, and it is slowly having an effect. And so there's a concern that uh, even um, that the continued mass use of landsets by the Russian forces can, in fact, have an impact on the Ukrainian military. There's also indication that Russian military, such as the airborne forces, are establishing FPV training and supply pipelines and are starting to use these FPV drones on a large scale. There's yet to be an actual MOD-like or defense industry-like approach to mass production of these drones. Most of the quadcopters and FPV drones in the Russian military today are donated by volunteers. But there's an indication that there's um, an understanding in some parts of the MOD uh, structure of the importance of these systems and um, there's a potential for the Russian defense industry to start eventually manufacturing these type of drones in large quantities. Of course, FPV drones are tactical weapons, they're frontline weapons, and uh, in the hands of an experienced pilot, they could be a very, very significant and a dangerous asset because FPV drones cost less than $1,000, yet they can go after targets that can cost hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. So having thousands of these drones operate at once along the entire front can actually have an impact either in the hands of Ukrainians or the Russians. So um, I'm watching how um, Russian defense industry and the, um, and the Ministry of Defense are trying to sort of slowly but surely um, turn in the direction of um, FPV, mass-scale FPV drone, and as well as uh, a mass-scale FPV uh, drone manufacturer. When that happens, it is going to have a qualitative effect as well as a quantitative effect on the field.
was one of the reasons, uh, you know, Vladimir Zelensky has explained that one of the reasons actually there weren't a lot of troops to stop Prigozhin on his drive toward Moscow was actually most of the forces were actually engaged. And so there weren't really that many spare forces, uh, especially in, in uh, an area so far to the rear. Is that, is, there, is that a plausible statement on the part of the Ukrainian president? It is a plausible statement. And a lot of military commentators in Russia and uh, um, internationally have actually pointed out that fact as well. At the same time, there are supposed to be institutions inside Russia that are uh, that exist to prevent, um, again, internal unrest from taking place. So really, National Guard, Nazgvardia, uh, was nowhere to be seen in Rostov or elsewhere. Um, and uh, other sort of interior ministry forces really were nowhere to be seen as well. And of course, uh, that probably was the most glaring public admission that something was wrong in the Russian system or that something was happening behind the scenes with Prigozhin and the people he was trying to engage or compete with. Um, that's why those institutions are probably going to be strengthened going forward to prevent a repeat of this type of um, unrest, armed insurrection, mutiny, whatever we want to call it, or any other type of uh, internal unrest. Uh, Russian interior ministry uh, in the past and its Soviet predecessor actually had a significant uh, armed contingent. Uh, so National Guard is probably going to be strengthened to try and possibly suppress any uh, large-scale um, unrest or competition uh, to the state. Again, we're not exactly sure how this is going to turn out. And uh, all of this is still in progress. There's a lot of moving parts here. And again, a lot of unknowns. We still don't know a lot about what happened or what is actually happening right now. Sam, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks very much and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rago. And a word from our sponsors, Bell Sponsors, our daily podcast, HII Sponsors, our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems Sponsors, our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications Sponsors, our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace Sponsors, our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, for a look at the week ahead, uh, however abbreviated, and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, I hope you guys had a terrific holiday weekend. Uh, the rain interfered with a lot of plans, but all in all, it was pretty good. You and I are both very disappointed when we can't get on a sailboat. So uh, I, I fully appreciate that. And sailing in a thunderstorm, not such a good idea. Yeah, not, uh, not on my list of things to do. Not on my list of things to do. <laughs> exactly. That is not on my bucket list, uh, even though a couple of times I've been uh, underway with a thunderstorm oh, going yeah, on, yeah. which has been... Been there, been there too. So anyway. Exactly. Um, all right. Uh, so... Um, uh, China is restricting uh, gallium and uh, germanium, two obviously very, very important uh, rare earth uh, minerals uh, to the entire electronics uh, ecosystem. Uh, this is happening as the White House is deploying Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, as the latest uh, senior official to go to Beijing to dial down tensions. And it's sort of fascinating to me that we keep really trying to dial down tensions with a country that's ratcheting up tensions with us, uh, right? I mean, the Chinese were angry that we caught them and shot down their spy balloon, right? Uh, sort of uh, how yeah, dare Morgan, you? But I think, you know, the Chinese, the, this specific move, it took place, it was announced on July 3rd by, uh, by China. And, you know, it was in response to some of the restrictions that were placed on um, semiconductor equipment, uh, notably, you know, the further tightening on um, the, the equipment that's manufactured by 
AMSL, the Dutch uh, Semiconductor Equipment Company. So it's this ongoing tit for tat that's been going on on technology, technology control. You know, there's probably a whole nother range of, of U.S. measures that are in the hopper. And I think it's just natural to expect that China is going to respond to some of these. So the gallium thing, though, is important for defense because the, the role that gallium nitride had placed uh, had, had played in this whole new uh, generation of AESA radars that have come out, um, Raytheon, Lockheed, and uh, and Northrop Grumman all use gallium nitride semiconductors in their AESA radars. Uh, it's also, you know, in electronic warfare systems. Um, the European radars, you know, Talas, Saab, Leonardo also use gallium nitride semiconductors in, in their uh, AESA radars. So, it's pretty intriguing. What's intriguing too is China has about 98% of the uh, the global uh, capacity for primary gallium. Um, you know, my view, I, I wrote the note during the fourth, um, <laughs> it's what you do on a rainy day, I guess, but um, I didn't have a chance to talk to a lot of people on this, but you know, my presumption is there's still there's some gallium that can be recovered through recycling in the United States, and I also think that um, you know I I doubt that it's going to be another supply chain issue for uh, U.S. defense contractors. Um, obviously, if if you cut uh, gallium, you know potentially that's something that could affect the pace of radar and electronic warfare programs. But um, I, I assume you know, there'll be enough for the contractors to get through. And I suppose the DOD can also intervene right. uh, to prioritize that. Um, and, and frankly, if there's gallium going to U.S. commercial firms, that could be diverted, uh, I'm sorry, diverted to uh, to defensive. So it's something to watch. Um, I, I think, you know, the broader messages to me are, you know, there again, there was more language about uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act about building more domestic capacity, um, gallium. And I think even the Chinese press released on this, you know, they said it's it's an environmentally messy um, product to build and, and the right. kind of, you know, not in my backyard, the cost to develop or redevelop domestic sources of gallium. We haven't had a primary domestic source of gallium, I think since 1987. So um, right. there, there, there are multiple ramifications of this. Well, isn't this, though, something that you kind of do once and the ecosystem begins to adjust to cut you out of it, right? I mean, after uh, the Chinese did it uh, to Japan uh, some years ago, there was a lot of investment on the Japanese to try to uh, uh, sort of broaden sources of uh, supply. Um, we're looking at that in the United States for standing up some capabilities, even though it's fascinating that many of the leading defense contractors want to continue to buy from China and don't want to buy from the American company because they're like, well, it's cheaper, uh, right? I mean, so it's interesting th that the weapons makers themselves would like the product to be coming from China because it's easier and cheaper. Um, does this drive, you think, uh, at a time when fo folks are more focused on it and Congress is willing to spend money, that this is sort of a lever you might be able to pull once or twice, and after that, you're not going to be able to pull it again. Yeah, I mean, it's a cost imposition strategy. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a lever you pull, but you you are imposing a cost in the United States. To your point, um, you know, there'll be a cost to develop um, U.S. domestic sources. Um, I assume that those sources are going to be more expensive than, than the Chinese sources. Um, 
and so but you know it it works two ways i mean as we restrict semiconductor technology um other other microelectronic or ai technology or ai enabling technology to china it's it's a bullet that we're firing once too because it's forcing china to build their own network their own systems so right. but um and that's a cost imposition strategy as well uh you know i think i think the bigger the bigger more interesting trend line um is what does this mean for u.s defense contractors and also do business with china because i i really do think we're heading towards this point in time i don't know where we're going to reach it but you know as much as the u.s is loath to do business with chinese companies that also um are in their defense uh uh sector you know put that shoe on the chinese for how how willing are they to do business with u.s companies that also are building or supplying equipment to the DOD that's aimed at deterring and defeating the Chinese military. So this cleavage that I think could eventually emerge in aerospace in particular is going to be really fascinating to watch. It's it's just China doesn't have the domestic uh, aerospace industry today to do that. But, you know, those 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 cracks are appearing. And I just think it's it's something that's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, it, it is going to be fascinating to watch. But again, I mean, this uh, tit for tat, you know, if if the Chinese uh, are uh, being so concerted in sort of stealing technology, misappropriating it, using this technology for military purposes under false pretenses, right? I mean, acquiring the technology is, you know, we've, we've sort of understood that's what they're doing. And we still continue to do trade with them. And, and then when you finally start to call them on it, you have all of all of these reactions. So yeah, I mean, it is um, uh, like a war, right? Uh, everybody, you know, one or chess or uh, go or whatever else, right? You'd make a step and your adversary takes a step. Um, it's but it's but it's it's interesting to see. I mean, do do you put a lot of faith into whether or not you know the Yellen mission is going to succeed any more than? Uh, well, the Blinken mission in dialing you know, down. I, I think you know, at the very least, we're talking. You know, I I, I think um, you know it, it's unfortunate that General Milley couldn't uh, meet with his, or I guess it was General Milley. It's it's unfortunate. It was, uh, was Secretary it's Austin? Important. Secretary yeah, Austin. Yeah. I, I think it's unfortunate that Secretary Austin wasn't. Uh, you know, the Chinese weren't willing to take a meeting with him at the Shangri La dialogue in Singapore. Um, that mill-to-mill -mill dialogue is really critical just to diffuse tension and, and make sure that you have the channels there when, you know, there is a collision or a, an accidental downing of an airplane that, that something doesn't escalate, <clears throat> you know, uncontrollably. Um, so I, I think, you know, at a level, we have to cooperate with China on on much broader global issues. I mean, you do want a semi-functioning world trading system, uh, these broader issues like climate. Um, some people may disagree with that, but I think there's a lot that that has to be coordinated with, with China. And, and, you know, so basic, uh, basic relationships are going to be important. I, I don't have high expectations for the Yellen visit, but I didn't have high expectations for the Blinken visit either. But on the other hand, you know, at least we're talking. And if it paves the way for a Biden C meeting late this year, you know, that that I think would be another sign that, um, you know, it, it's better to talk to people and just put them in a corner and, and try and lock the door on them. Uh, in, indeed, even even during the Cold War, we had uh, dialogue with our 
yeah. Russian uh, friends, uh, ultimately. Um, I want to uh, move on because there's a lot more to discuss in the, the five or so minutes we've got left. Um, but you talk to us about the problem of the three uh, threes, uh, right? Uh, interesting note on, on China and how to think about it now that we're talking about China. Yeah, well, um, so really kind of riffed off an event that was held at Wilson Center last week on the publication of a study by one of their scholars. Um, the uh, gentleman's name, Robert Litvak, published something called Tripolar Instability Nuclear Competition Among the United States, Russia, and China. And it, it was re reference to the three-body problem <clears throat> that's been observed in astrophysics. And it's kind of like when you have two bodies interacting with one another, it tends to be really relatively stable. When you introduce a third body, you know, all sorts of gyrations and, and instability can occur. And, you know, the point was that he was making is that as China moves to try and achieve um, strategic nuclear parity with Russia and China, and, and he's really referencing the DOD assessment that by 2035, China could have about 1,500 warheads um, and, and the delivery systems to deliver those warheads, you're going you're gonna to see a much more um, unstable global geopolitical environment. The point I was trying to make in the note that I wrote is it's not just a problem of these three countries. You know, if you think about that time frame, um, and, and you take North Korea's aspirations at face value, you know, they have a goal to have about 300 warheads in that in that time horizon. Um, you still have other countries like India that are going to matter in China's strategic calculus. And who knows what else can happen? You know, Iran, it's arguably a, a threshold state. You know, if they cross that line and, um, and their nuclear um, infrastructure survives a, a U.S.-Israeli strike or strikes, um, it, it's just a little bit more complicated than three countries um, staring at each other, you know, or, or not staring, but competing with one another. And so I don't have a good answer for it, um, uh, other than I think, you know, it's not just the U.S., China, and, and, and Russia that matter here. And then if you start talking about entering a regime of um, arms reduction talks, you know, the, one of the numbers that was thrown out at the uh, Wilson event was, well, maybe you could get these, you know, the inventories of the big three down to 750 warheads. Well, that's fine and dandy, but what does that mean for, you know, how people look at India or North Korea or whoever right. else might join the nuclear club by 2035? So I, I, I just put it on the table. You know, I don't necessarily see it as something that signals the global security system is about to go haywire. I, I just think it's a lot more complex problem than the big three states. Um, and I, what I think is uh, also interesting and worth bearing in mind is the United States and the Soviet Union negotiated uh, agreements because the size of the arsenals became terrifying. Yeah. Um, at this point, the arsenals are not terrifying and, and, and everybody has the resources to be able to produce these weapons, right? So... Yeah. yeah. And, they're uh, and, still, and they still, I mean, you know, there in my note, there's a link. People can find these things on the on the web, you know, just do the do a nuclear blast calculator, you know, pick the city of your choice and look at what, you know, a 40 kiloton weapon that India has can do to most major Chinese cities. I mean, it, it's it's a fact of life. 
um, as I, I just think it's, we're not there yet. I mean, it's probably going to get a lot worse before it gets better. You know, new start, there's no sign that, that that's going to be extended. Um, I don't think, you know, this current administration is really taking the view that we're going to honor new start. We don't think we need to start down a path where we're dramatically stepping up the size of our nuclear inventory. We're going to rely on some of the conventional, you know, hypersonics, probably cyber and space. Um, but, you know, if there's a new president in 2025 or 2029, they may take a very different view of that. And they might well try and match um, these Russian and Chinese inventories. We don't know what Putin will do or what, what his capacity to do will be uh, in the 20s, 2020s and 2030s. And so um, it, it has a lot of different vectors for people to think through. Obviously, if you spend a lot more money on strategic weapons, that the question that's going to come, well, where's that money going to come from? Right. Um, you know, does that more more pressure on conventional spending or is it just more for defense in general? But, um, you know, in the fiscal environment, we've seen the kind of return to debt and debt ceiling concerns. Um, where's the money going to come from? Um, I, I should uh, uh, also point out that if you're anybody um, around the world who's considering whether or not nuclear weapons make sense for you, you would just look at the Russians are able to hide behind a nuclear shield get the whole uh, Western alliance to move very gingerly uh, under uh, because of the fear that the Russians would use a tactical nuclear weapon, right? Uh, and indeed, you know, last week uh, had a nuclear, uh, you know, put an animation on television showing a nuclear bomb uh, hitting National Airport across from uh, the right. Potomac, right? And so, the flip of that would be, you know, would, would Ukraine be in the pickle they're in today had they given up the nuclear weapons that the Soviet Union had on Ukrainian territory? So Correct. They should have, well, we may an agreement with them to guarantee their security, uh, alas. Um, but very quickly, um, we talked about the RUSI, uh, the Royal United Services Institute's Land Warfare Conference last week that you found uh, uh, great. You wrote a note about that and give us a sense on what's on the week ahead. We've got about a minute. Um, look, I, I think there's a consensus that, you know, there are going to be a lot of lessons learned from the war. I thought one of the more pithy comments uh, from one of the speakers at the event was, uh, you know, I look at a lot of history and, and his point was, well, yeah, there was a war, you know, between Russia and Japan in 1904 and 1905, where you had a lot of European and U.S. observers, um, you know, watching how that conflict unfolded and what the lessons learned were for. And of course, none of those lessons really got folded into uh, the armies that were sent to war in 1914. So, right. you know, that was kind of the warning thing as much as drones, um, you know, ubiquitous surveillance, precision strike, um, logistics. It's fine to talk about the, all this, but when are we really going to start seeing it flow into budgets, um, doctrine and training? And it's, it's just kind of what I riffed off when I wrote about the, uh, the Rusi conference. Um, this week, Vago, as you would expect, you know, it's kind of quiet. Um, there is a couple of think tank events on um, uh, Belarus and Russia that Atlanta Council has held. Um, uh, Lieutenant General John E. Shaw, the Deputy Commander of U.S. Space Command, is speaking July 6th at the AFA's Mitchell Institute. And um, there is a uh, Royal United Services Institute event on illicit finance and global security on July 6th, you know, not directly relevant to defense, but 
uh, maybe as we've seen in in Russia and Central Europe, uh, you know, illicit finance has been a, a problem. Um, it's certainly been a problem for for global terrorism as well, too. So we'll keep an eye on that. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks very much for joining us and I hope you have a great uh, week and look forward to having you back on again next week. The weather forecast looks better, Vaga. Thank you. <laughs>